Can I have you guys all turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11? If you're new with us, we welcome you. It's good to have you this morning. And uh, just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We are currently in chapter 11 looking at the greatest miracle Jesus did, raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, before we continue in John 11, let me first set up this message by saying that this chapter brings us face to face with the inevitable consequence of life, and that's death. Death is a reality that, well, each of us must face at some time, some point in our life. As somebody said, it's a grim reaper that has touched many, uh, touched, I should say, every one of our lives in some form or another, bringing with it pain, fear, loneliness, and grief. It's a constant reminder of our own mortality and how tenuous life can sometimes be. Someone has said, and I quote, death is, death is the specter that haunts the end of the corridor of every person's life. Death has both mystified and terrified man from the beginning. It knows no boundaries and is not limited to any one class of people or ethnic group. Small or great, rich or poor, young or old, no one escapes its grasp, end quote. In fact, Paul the Apostle said that human beings have been taken captive by death, which has caused people to live their lives in, the, in bondage to the fear of death. Some people are consumed with the fear of death, and that's sad. Uh, I've run into some of them. But uh, Paul said that's kind of common uh, because, you know, death is inevitable, and uh, it has caused people to live their lives in bondage to the fear of death. Now, when we come to John 11, we have good news. Jesus announces here in this chapter, I believe the greatest news ever delivered to mankind when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live again. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus came to rob death of its sting and the grave of its victory. But before a person can share in the victory that Jesus won over death, he or she must answer first the question that Jesus asked Martha in verse 26 when he said simply, do you believe this? Did she believe what? Did she believe that Jesus was God in human form, the resurrection and the life? Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. Again, guys, one of the inevitable realities of death is that it causes us to question the meaning of life. We get so busy with our lives and so running from one chore or one task to the next, we often don't uh, stop to wrestle with the deeper issues of life. There are deeper questions, um, and the devil would like to keep us so busy that we just never stop long enough to ask ourselves about these questions, and uh, yet they bubble up to the surface uh, from time to time. And uh, when you go to the funeral of a loved one, uh, usually that's one of the times when you start asking yourself questions like, why am I here? Why am I here? Is this all there is to life? Is there a purpose in it all? Or do I only live to die? Is life just about making money and then buying stuff, going places, and dying? And what happens after I die? Does my consciousness cease to exist? Or do I go on living in some other realm, in some other form? Again, guys, these are burning questions in the hearts of every person. Not to say that every person wrestles with them 
these questions on a regular basis, uh, but there are times, again, when they will surface. And the people will wrestle with them for a while, and but then, you know, either those questions are going to bring into Jesus or, you know, and that's what the Holy Spirit is trying to do, trying to get you to wrestle with the deeper issues of life. You know, what, especially what happens after I die, right? But a person often will then just quickly bury those things back down as they go on, you know, in, in pursuing trivial things and, 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 and just wasting their life on, on just things that don't matter. Whether you realize it or not, these are the most important, most important questions in life. Now, in John chapter 11, Jesus answers all of these questions by declaring that he is the resurrection and the life. And then he proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. Anybody can say whatever they want. they got to back it up. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he raised Lazarus to prove it. Now, so far in our outline of John 11... We have looked at the critical friend, the callous savior, the concerned disciples. We looked at this last time. Remember the chapter opened up by introducing us to this family made up of a brother and two sisters. Tells us that Lazarus, the brother, was very ill. And uh, this was a family that was very close to Jesus. I'll talk about that more in a moment. And so his sisters quickly uh, dispatched uh, a word to Jesus through messenger, uh, you know, the, 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 your friend Lazarus, I'm paraphrasing, your, your dear friend Lazarus is very sick. And then verse 5, the Holy Spirit adds, and Jesus loved this family. Because what comes next might not give us the impression he really did care about them. All right? But the Holy Spirit adds in verse 5 that the Lord Jesus Christ agape this family. Very deep, deep love for them. And then it says in verse 7, he said to his disciples, all right, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, this is the, this is the part where they were concerned. Uh, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Well, that's the end of chapter 10. All right. Jesus said some things they didn't like, so they picked up stones to kill him. So they had to leave town. And the disciples are saying, Lord, what, are, you, are you kidding? Last time we were in Jerusalem, they tried to kill you. You want to go back there? This is what, okay. And uh, Jesus said, look, you know, you got to walk in the light while it's still day. And he gives them this little thing. We talked about that last time. But um, he said, you know, uh, he said in verse 10, um, he said, verse 11, actually, these things I sa he said, uh, and after, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then the disciples, God loved them, were totally clueless, said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Because, you know, he's sick, right? When you're sick, you sleep. That's good. And uh, Jesus said, uh, however, verse 13, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And Jesus said to them plainly, you know, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, uh, said to his fellow disciples, and I'm going to paraphrase how I believe he said it, yeah, let's all go and die. All right, yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, it's a good day to die. Let's just all go. They want to kill him. Last time we had to leave quickly because they wanted to stone him, but he wants to go back there. Let's all go. We'll all die. It's going to be a great day. Right? That's how I, how I feel he said it, okay? But last week, as we ran out of time, 
And uh, I told you last time that uh, I wanted to get to something else, ran out of time, and I told you that before we moved on in our study in John 11, that I would uh, stop briefly to talk about a false doctrine that is based on the concept that when a believer dies, they sleep. Jesus said this in verse 11, a doctrine known as soul sleep. Those who believe in soul sleep believe that when a believer in Christ dies, their soul goes to sleep. Not a very deep thing. It's pretty obvious in the title. All right? They believe that when a Christian dies, their soul goes to sleep and does not awaken again until the rapture. Now, if they're an unbeliever, their soul sleeps till after the millennial kingdom and then is resurrected or awakened at the final judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. So they believe that Christians, basically, though, primarily, that when they die, they, their soul goes to sleep. That is not true. It's not, that's biblically uh, incorrect. The Bible doesn't teach that when a believer dies, their soul goes to sleep. It teaches that their body is placed in the grave and sleeps, quote-unquote, while their soul remains fully conscious. Turn to Revelation 6 quickly. Now, this is going to happen during the tribulation period, so for us it's yet future, but John was seeing it in real time. But Revelation 6, starting with verse 9, And when he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, John said, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest, not sleep, rest, uh, just wait, a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Now, these are Christian martyrs who were killed by the Antichrist during the tribulation period, notice that their souls are fully conscious, and they have gone into the presence of the Lord. And again, I quote 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, when a Christian dies, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Very good. So that's just one example. But in my mind, the greatest example, and I have you turn to Luke 16, I believe the greatest example of what we're studying is the story that Jesus told of a rich man. He was unnamed. And, and let me just say this. It was a story, not a parable. I bring that up because I have used this with Jehovah's Witnesses who believe in annihilationism. Hold on to that thought, okay? Um, and I have showed them this passage in Luke, and they get around it by saying, well, this is a parable. It's not real. It's a parable, made-up story. To prove a point. Well, what's the point? Okay, anyway. In a parable, Jesus never names anybody. It's always a certain man went to this kingdom. Or a certain man went on a journey. That kind of thing, right? It's never a, a name. When Jesus named one of these people, he was telling us this is not a parable. This is a real life situation. Okay? He told this story about a rich man who was unnamed. And a poor diseased beggar named Lazarus. Be careful, this is not the Lazarus of our story of John 11. It's a different Lazarus, okay? I'm just going to read a few of these verses, starting Luke 16, verse 19, where Jesus said there was a certain man, rich man, 
who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. What we're not told, but is obvious, the, the uh, diseased beggar Lazarus was a believer, and the rich man was an unbeliever. Verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I'll let you read the rest on your own. Jesus tells us in verse 23 that this is, Places called Hades. It's not hell. There are Christians, not you guys. I know you're sophisticated. You know the word. There are Christians. I, I hear it all the time, uh, and I, you know, that they confuse uh, Hades with hell. This is not hell. Hell is in the outer darkness, somewhere in the remote regions of the universe. This is a place in the center of the earth. It is called Hades. It's a temporary place of incarceration. Temporary. Hades is divided into two compartments, separated from each other by a great gulf. Think of the Grand Canyon, so that those on one side can't get to the other side and vice versa. One side is a place of torment, where unbelievers, listen, still go. Very active, still go. Unbelievers have always gone to Hades, are still going, and will continue to go until a certain point. But one side is a place of torment where believer, unbelievers go. The other side is a paradise called uh, in the old. Uh, excuse me, a paradise where all the Old Testament saints—Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah—where uh, they all went. A place that's called Abraham's bosom. It was a place of comfort. It was a paradise, still there but empty. What do you mean? Hang on. Before Jesus went to the cross, every believer in the Old Testament. Believers, Abraham and all, they, they, they believe by faith, okay, promises of God, coming Messiah, Savior, and so on. So they were saved by faith looking forward. We are saved by faith looking backward at the cross. But the idea is, it was by faith, okay? So all Old Testament saints, uh, mostly Jewish, maybe a few Gentiles that got to save, proselytized the Judaism, okay? Mostly Jews, though. They all went when they died into Hades. Now, it was called Abraham's bosom because he comforted these people. Uh, it was a paradise, but a prison. A prison because even though they were comforted, it was like a paradise, they couldn't leave because Jesus hadn't yet died for their sins. They couldn't go to heaven, into the presence of God. God will not allow anything in his presence that is defiling. So they couldn't go to heaven. So they were in Hades. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus died, we, we, we know that he, um, he said he's going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Some people say, well, that was the tomb. The tomb was not in the heart of the earth. The heart of the earth is Hades. Well, what did he do for those three days? Peter tells us he went down there after he died on the cross, and he first of all proclaimed his victory to the angels that tried to keep him from being born. How did they do that? Read Genesis 6, go online, listen to the study. We went in great detail about the satanic attempt to thwart the coming of Messiah into the human race to save us from our sins, all right? So Jesus goes down there, and he proclaims his victory, right? Paul said in Ephesians 4, 
that, and then as he ascended up into heaven, he, he let the captives free, set them free, and took all of these saints to heaven with him, their souls, okay? And now, as a Christian, when a Christian dies, they don't go into Hades, that Jesus already paid for their sins. So again, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Their soul goes immediately into the presence of the Lord in a fully conscious state, is my point, okay? First of all, I want to say this, that Luke 16, 23 disproves the idea, the doctrine of annihilationism. What is that? That is when a person dies, their soul is cast into the lake of fire. When it hits the lake of fire, it is vaporized. They go out of existence. There is no eternal suffering. JWs believe that. Other groups believe it. It's not true. I would love to believe in it. It's just not true. Okay? The smoke of their torment ascends. For, uh, uh, the smoke of their torment is, for, is day and night. They have no rest day or night. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. I think it's Revelation 14. Okay? So this disproves annihilationism. All right? But... It also disproves the doctrine of soul sleep, which again is the belief that the soul is not conscious between death and resurrection. Guys, this verse and many others prove conclusively that there is a conscious existence beyond the grave. For all unbelievers, when they die, their soul goes into Hades, again in a fully conscious state, where they will remain until after the thousand-year millennial kingdom is over, then they will be resurrected to stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne. Judgment again, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Whoever stands before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment, first of all, they're all unbelievers. It's a final judgment of unbelievers. They're all going to hell. All of them are going to be cast into the lake of fire. So what's the purpose of the great white throne judgment? It's a judgment that will determine their degree of punishment in hell determined by how wickedly they lived their life, how much they knew about, about the truth but rejected. See, there's degrees of punishment in hell, even as there's degrees of reward in heaven. But we'll get to that when we get to Revelation 20. But I just want you to understand something, that this idea that there is life, conscious existence after death is something, and you'd have to be someone trying very hard to erase large portions of the Bible. Anybody that has a sincere heart and goes to the Bible with an open mind, this is not ambiguous. This is not one of those subjects that's controversial or ambiguous. It's very clear, absolutely clear, the Bible teaches that there is a conscious existence after physical death. And also a judgment. Coming for all who reject Jesus. This judgment is called the great white throne judgment and it will result in them being cast into the lake of fire, hell, which the Bible calls the second death. This is an eternal death. Separating them from... Not, it's not that they're going to be not conscious because you know, we think of death with the corpses in the grave, it's not conscious. Well, we're not talking about the corpse, we're talking about their soul, okay? Just as physical death is when the soul is separated from the body, spiritual death the second death is when the consciousness or soul is separated from God they wanted nothing to do with God in this life so God sends them to a place where there is absolutely no God think about that even unbelievers right now who don't believe in God benefit 
Uh, we all, in him we all live and move and have our being. He causes the sun to shine in the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous and, 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 gives, and gives crops and, and allows things to grow in those same fields for both believers and unbelievers. Even unbelievers can taste the, the, the love of God. I mean, they don't realize it, but they can experience love and even joy and happiness and fulfillment. These are all attributes of God that they don't realize they are being secondary beneficiaries of. It's what the theologians call general grace. General grace. Think of an existence without God entirely. Absolutely no joy, no peace, no love, no hope. I'm talking none. It's hard to imagine. No wonder they weep and wail and gnash their teeth forever. For us who are Christians, if we don't make it to the rapture, our bodies are going to wear out and die. We'll be buried. Our soul will go into the presence of the Lord. Our bodies will sleep, quote-unquote, in the dust of the earth. And at the time of the rapture, they will be awakened, glorified, and reunited with our soul and spirit. All right, just wanted to clear that up. I don't know who was, I don't know who was actually interested in all that, but as a teacher, I, I don't like to overlook anything. All right. This morning, I'd like to continue by looking at the fourth main point of our outline, what I'm calling the confused sisters. Okay, why, why have I called this fourth point of our outline the confused sisters? Well, it's because of Jesus' response to the urgent message they sent to him, pleading with him to come quickly. Uh, their brother Lazarus, his good friend, his dear friend, was on the verge of death. At the time the girl sent this message, as we have said, Jesus and his disciples were in Bethabara. Uh, that was down by the Jordan River. The disciples were baptizing probably new converts. Like, yeah, that's obviously what they were doing. As we have said, Bethabara was about 20 miles from Bethany, which meant it was a, about a two-day journey by foot. All right, But Jesus purposely waits a couple of days. Come quickly, Lord. Your dear friend is on the verge of death. Okay, I'll get there when I get there. Waits a couple of days. Makes the two-day journey, right? Not exactly the actions of a dear friend. But there's a point to that, okay? I mean, this behavior confused the girls. I mean, it was so unlike Jesus. It seemed so indifferent, so callous. That's what we called it, the third point, the second point, the callous Savior. Not that he wasn't really callous, obviously, but he gave them the impression he was. He was callous, indifferent. So unlike their loving Savior, that, that's not how Jesus acts. He's always been so compassionate when people have a need. He races to help people. What, what's going on? They were confused. Remember, Bethany was located about two miles from Jerusalem uh, on the slope, uh, on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about two miles from Jerusalem. Because it was in such close proximity to Jerusalem, and because of the close relationship that Jesus did have with his family, he did love them. I mean, he agaped them. We just said that, verse 5, right? He was very close to this family. And uh, how he got so close to them was be, they opened their home to him. You want to invite Jesus into your house? Open your home to people. Well, be careful. Not, not just that you don't put it in the paper. You've got to be careful. But, but, you know, if God leads you somebody, open your house, okay? Because Jesus comes, okay? Jesus comes. And they opened their home to Jesus, and, and often uh, he would go there just to spend a few hours maybe away from the rigors of public life, uh, have a, 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 a good meal maybe. Some days after a long day of rigorous ministry in Jerusalem, he'd walk a couple miles and spend the night. So they were very close, this family, right? And the women knew 
Well, at least as we said a few weeks ago, it's interesting that the message that Mary and Martha sent to Jesus didn't contain, look, any instructions or commands. There wasn't any detailed account of the situation. In fact, there really wasn't a request of any kind made to the Lord. It was implied in the message. That's because the girls knew Jesus. The women knew that all they had to do was say to Jesus, your dear friend Lazarus was, is sick. And that was all it was going to take. He'd rush to Bethany to help his friend. Nothing more needed to be said. But again, Jesus seems to have ignored their ur urgent plea to come and help. He didn't come right away. And that not only confused Mary and Martha mentally, I believe, it crushed them emotionally. We'll see it in a second. So he finally gets there. Now he comes, he's at the outskirts of the town. And somebody rushes to tell the women in the house, um, you know, Jesus is here. He's at, he's at the edge of town. So verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Again, as we said a few weeks ago, the story indicates that the day the messenger arrived from Mary and Martha telling the Lord that Lazarus was sick, on that very day, in fact, it might have been at the very moment Lazarus died, the message came to Jesus. We know it was that day. The very day the messenger arrived with that message, come quickly, Lazarus is sick, Lazarus died. Might have been at the very moment. But then Jesus, again, we said, waited two days before making the two-day journey to Bethany. So that by the time he and his disciples got there, Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. Now, guys, understand, the Jewish people didn't embalm dead bodies like the Egyptians did. So when a Jew died, it was customary to bury the deceased on the day of their death. Acts chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, verse 10, implies that. There's other scriptures that imply that. We know from Jewish culture, though. Upon death, if it was a Jewish person, they would immediately wrap the body with cloth strips placing spices into the windings, aromatic spices, myrrh, other things that would stave off the stench of death, okay? And then they would put the body into the family tomb immediately. Now, one author adds an important detail that you may not have known. Maybe you do, but I wanted you to hear it, okay? He said, and I quote, the Jews believed that the soul hovered around the body for three days after death, hoping to re-enter it. But on the fourth day, after noticing that the body was beginning to decompose, the soul departed. Only then would a death be considered completely irreversible. Lazarus had been dead for four days, and his body had already started to decompose. Verse 39 tells us that. The Jews, therefore, would have recognized that only a divine miracle could restore him to life. End quote. This was all by the design of God. We'll talk about that. Verse 18. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles, and many of the Jews, and again, this is John's way of uh, talking about Jewish leadership, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on. Many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. I'm trying to give you a picture of Jewish culture, because we, we don't, didn't live back then. And to fully understand these stories, you need to have some cultural background. Now, you just were made familiar with how the Jews felt about the spirit hovering over a dead body until the fourth day when it would depart because now decomposition was setting in and it was they, they're never going to come back to life, okay? 
But I want you to see how they responded, the Jewish people, to a death of somebody in the community. And uh, when a Jewish family member died in that culture, the whole community came out to mourn with the family. It was a big thing, a big thing. One historian said, and I quote, men and women would walk separately in the funeral procession, after which the women alone would return from the burial site to begin the 30-day mourning period. The first seven days of mourning were the most intense, and many of the mourners would remain with the family for that entire week. That explains why the Jews who came to console Martha and Mary were still with them four days after the burial, end quote. So this first seven days was especially intense. And it wasn't uncommon for close friends of the family to, uh, to stay with the family the entire time, okay? Um, we're going to see next week how if you were a wealthy family, they would actually hire professional mourners to really drive home the grief. Okay, well, hang on to that thought, okay? Got a lot of things to hang on to. I hope don't drop anything on the way out. Now look, the fact that John makes it a point to tell us that Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem does serve two purposes. Nothing, nothing, nothing in the Bible is by accident. I encourage you, when you read the word, read it like a detective. You know, even the tenses uh, of, of the verb, uh, the, the, the noun, is it, is it singular, plural? Nothing, every jot and tittle has been placed there by the Holy Spirit has a, has a meaning. Nothing is by accident, Right? And the fact that John makes it a point to tell us that Bethany was only a couple miles from Jerusalem, he had a point in telling us this. There's twofold reason, okay? First, it highlights the risk Jesus took by coming so near to Jerusalem, the place where so many Jewish leaders lived who wanted to kill Jesus. Number one. Number two, it also implies that many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to mourn with them over the death of Lazarus came from Jerusalem. A lot of these mourners had come from the city because it was so close to um, the village that they lived in Bethany. And uh, the fact that so many Jews came, and again, and I, please, I say this every time the word Jews appears in John's gospel, but I don't want you to miss this. John usually almost always has Jewish leadership in mind. And the reason so many of the Jewish leaders came to console the sisters of Lazarus suggests, listen, that at very least the family was a prominent family and probably they were prominent because they were wealthy. And they donated a lot of money to the temple before Jesus showed up, okay, and began to teach he's the temple, okay. But um, they were probably, had given much money to the temple and so forth. And so when an influential family like this who were good tithers, okay, got to take care of them tithers, pastors feel. You know, it's like, we appreciate everything you give to God, but, you know, that's between you and God, okay? I don't give you special treatment because you give more than somebody else, all right? But they did back then. Let's be honest. People do it today in churches, all right? So they all came out. A lot of the religious big shots came out because, you know, you got to help the girls mourn because, you know, they want to stay on their good side because they give money to the, uh, the temple and so on. Um, one author adds uh, something I thought was important. Uh, from the human perspective, the mourners were there to comfort the sisters in their loss. But from God's perspective, they were there to witness Jesus' stunning miracle. I believe the greatest of his ministry. 
The raising of Lazarus would be done in public before numerous onlookers, many of whom were hostile to the Lord. As a result, not even Jesus' enemies would be able to deny what he had done, end quote. Right? Remember what uh, Paul said later on in the book of Acts as he's teaching somewhere? Uh, he said, look, uh, Agrippa, I think it was, uh, you know about this stuff. These things that Jesus did were not done in a what? Corner. They were done out in open for everyone to see. He wasn't hiding and doing, you know, miracles in secret. Well, no, he was out there. You know, it was common knowledge is the idea, okay? Verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, she runs out to the edge of town now to meet Jesus. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Now, guys, when Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I first of all believe, and I'm in the minority, and all the commentaries I read preparing for this message, most commentators disagree with me on this point. This is my conviction, okay? I'll share it with you. I believe that Martha's words contain a gentle, heartbroken rebuke. She was let down. She was disappointed. He confused her. He disappointed her. He crushed her emotionally. And I think that she gives to him, I'm not saying she was belligerent or disrespectful. Let's call it a reproof then. I believe this was a, a heartbroken, gentle reproof. Remember how I just said that because of the way Jesus acted? When the girl sent him the plea, come quickly, Lazarus is sick, and he didn't come quickly. And then by the time he came, Lazarus was already dead. And I said this confused the girls mentally, but crushed them emotionally. Or mentally. I, uh, uh, it confused the girls mentally, but crushed them emotionally. I, I really believe this is what's coming through here. Okay? Later we'll see it with Mary, too. All right? But um, these are the words of someone who loved Jesus. Let's just get that on the table. These are the words of someone who loved Jesus and believed in Jesus, but someone who doesn't understand the actions of Jesus in this situation. Ever been there? You love the Lord. You would never turn away from him. But there are things in life that sometimes he allows and doesn't fix that leave us confused. We're trying to grapple with a loving God who tells us he loves us, who is a good God, but lets us go through this kind of heartache, lets a child die of cancer at five, or the mother of four small children to die in a car accident. Mary is just heartbroken. She's not yelling at Jesus. She's not saying, I never want anything to do with you anymore. I'm done with you. No, she's, but she's expressing her, we're emotional people. We're not robots. God has designed us to have emotions. Now, it's a, wrong when we let them run wild and be, dictate everything. But, but it, it's okay to have emotions. Paul said, it's okay when you lose a loved one to sorrow. Just that we don't sorrow as others who have what? No hope. 
She, she doesn't understand the, the actions of Jesus in this situation. And now she's possibly wrestling, wrestling with the goodness and love of Jesus for her family. I mean, Martha wouldn't be the first person that trusted in the Lord to heal a sick loved one, only to see that person die. And now they're left to grapple with the goodness and love of God. Does he really love me? How, how, can, I, how can I go forward in my faith? I mean, I really believed with all my heart he was going to heal my wife or my child. I, I prayed, and I just felt I had confirmation the Lord was going to do it. And, and, and they died. Does he really love me? Is he really a good God? How could a good God who loved me allow this to happen? Go back a couple weeks and get our study on this. Because it's something that we wrestle with all the time. We've got to put it to rest. We've got to nail down what we believe and what the Word of God says about God and His love for us. But secondly, guys, when Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I'm going to share something that is very obvious, but I've got to get it out on the table, okay? You're, you know, you hear me say this. If I didn't preface it with that little remark, you might say, wow, deep, Pastor. Boy, never figured that one out. Good we have you to explain the difficult things. Look, when Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, I believe simply what she was saying was uh, if Jesus had been present before Lazarus had died, well, he would have simply healed him so that Lazarus wouldn't have died. That's pretty obvious, right? Although, okay, although it could be that Martha had grasped onto an interesting detail from spending so much time with Jesus. Now, you only get this if you spent a lot of time with the Lord, right? It could be that in saying this, Martha had latched onto something that maybe others didn't understand. How that nowhere in the Gospels, listen, did anyone ever die in the presence of Jesus? Nobody in the presence of Jesus ever died. After all, he was the Lord of life. And maybe Martha noticing that nobody ever, that maybe that's what she's alluding to. Lord, you're the Lord of life. If you have been here, he couldn't have died. Far from what Jesus implies in verse 15, excuse me, from what Jesus implies in verse 15, it tells us that he purposely waited for Lazarus to die before coming to Bethany. Uh, it was all by design. In other words, it was the will of the Father. Jesus never did anything except he, he got instructions from his Father. You better believe he waited the two days before he made the journey because the Father told him, wait, don't leave yet. I don't want you getting there before he dies. <gasps> Sounds cruel. Well, it's, God, God had a purpose in it. But the father purposely wanted Jesus to wait until Lazarus died and was buried for four days before Jesus then came to Bethany so that the disciples, listen, it was all for their benefit, so that the disciples would see a much greater miracle than Jesus simply healing another sick person from a disease. Which he did all the time, right? As Jesus said in verse 15, this was all for the benefit of the disciples so that they might believe. Believe what? Listen. 
that they might believe that Jesus was Almighty God, the only one who can give life to the dead. As powerful as Satan is, he does not have the power of life and death that is only that only belongs to God. He can counterfeit it. He will do it with the Antichrist who looks dead uh, before the, the devil resurrects him. He's always trying to copy God, right? But that was, that's going to be a counterfeit resurrection because the devil does not have power over life and death. Only God does. Only God does. And Jesus wanted the disciples to see that he had the power over life and death because he is God. And look, he's raised two others from the dead before this, but this Lazarus was good and dead. Okay? And, you know, his spirit was already gone. Because that's what they believe. I mean, Jesus wanted this to be so, to be such an, an incredible example of how he could raise the dead. Right? That these guys might believe. You have to understand something. We're about four months from the cross at this point in John 11. Four months from the cross. In a very short time, the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be handing over the most important work in the history of mankind, the work of glorifying God by saving lost souls. He was going to be handing the whole deal over to them because he was going to go back to the Father after his resurrection. These guys had to believe that everything he had taught about himself over the last three and a half years was absolutely true. They could no way go off, go out into the world preaching the gospel if they didn't believe Jesus was God Almighty, who had power over life and death. The cornerstone of the, of the gospel message was there is life after death. The life that God is offering is eternal life, Ionia Zoe, the most incredible life you could ever, you can't even imagine it, this side of glory. And so to do this, Jesus now begins to pull away from public ministry. He's got to focus the last few months on these guys. He's got to give them an intense discipleship course. He's got to drive into their heads morning, noon, and night. All the things he has taught them, but especially the things about himself, who he is, and so on. So that when he goes back to the Father, they can take that message and know it in their heart cold. That they, would, they have no doubts who they're representing. Now, I will admit something to you, that Martha's statement, but even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you, is in my mind somewhat confusing. By making that statement, was she saying that even though her brother Lazarus was dead, that if Jesus asked his father to resurrect him, it would be done? Sounds that way, doesn't it? And yet, again, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, whatever you ask God, God will give to you. Your brother's going to rise again, verse 23. You would think that if that was her mindset, she'd be jumping up and down for joy. Wonderful, Lord, bring it on. Raise Lazarus. Here I'm, I'm just, I can't wait to watch you do it. Instead, she responds in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Kind of odd when she says, I know, I know even now that whatever you ask God, God will give to you. Oh, your brother's going to rise again. Instead of saying, wonderful, I can't wait. Oh, yeah, I know. In the future, resurrection of the last day. You know, many commentators feel that Martha didn't have the faith to believe that Jesus 
that Jesus could raise her brother from the dead. They point to verse 24, as we just said, but especially to verse 39 as proof of this, where it says in verse 39, Jesus said, take, this, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Most of the commentaries, in fact, all the commentaries I read, and I read pretty much every commentary in my library uh, this, because I, I was troubled by it. I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. I was troubled by it. What, did I, what is she really saying here? Because it sounds like she's saying one thing, and then when Jesus says your brother's going to rise again, suddenly it's like she's not, that's not what she was talking about. And I read every commentary I have, and they left me very unsatisfied. Uh, we all know John MacArthur. We all know Chuck Swindoll. I'll quote you both of them, okay? John MacArthur says, and I quote, she seems to have had faith in the Lord's power to heal, but not in the Lord's power to raise the dead. Perhaps the possibility had not even crossed her mind. Nonetheless, Martha recognized that Jesus had a special relationship with God and was therefore confident that through his prayers, some good could still come out of the tragedy, end quote. Okay, but what? What good? He's dead. If there's any good in her mind, it's raise him. I mean, it's either one or the other, right? It's either he's dead or he's alive. What, what good? Okay? I, I just don't get that. Chuck Swindoll believes the same thing. Her statement, he says, even now I know that whatever you ask, ask of God, God will give you, cannot mean that she expected Jesus to bring her brother back to life, end quote. Look, I believe that Martha believed in Jesus with all of her heart. I further believe that she had faith she had the faith that if Jesus asked, listen, the Father, the Father to raise Lazarus through the power of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, her brother would live again. But like so many of us, her faith was imperfect. She's a normal person, right? I mean, she wasn't a super saint. Um, her faith wasn't perfect. And was even subject to ebbs and flows. What do I mean? Well, some days her faith was stronger than other days, right? Sometimes her faith was stronger than other times, depending on the circumstance. We all live there, right? Listen, when she said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, like so many of us believers. She had the faith to believe God to heal something large. Excuse me. She had the faith to believe, well, like us. Let me just use us, okay? We have the faith, and Martha emulates this. Um, how many here pray over a cold with greater faith than over stage four cancer? Right? Why do we do that? To our God, nothing is what? There's no degrees of difficulty. We assign degrees of difficulty into a situation depending on what the situation is. I pray with great boldness over a cold. You want me to pray for your cold, you wear a mask. You come up here. You come up here. And I'm going to pray the wallpaper off those walls. I'm going to just, you know, pray that cold be gone. You know, you come up with stage four cancer, I might be inclined to say, look, you know, why don't you just kind of accept the inevitable? No, I wouldn't do that. But we, we, just, we assign degrees of difficulty, right, to situations. And then we allow those degrees of difficulty in our mind to impact how much faith we have when we pray, the intensity of the faith we have when we pray, 
Because let's face it, in our mind, stage four cancer, that's pretty hopeless. We don't pray with much faith, right? Martha was no different. She had more faith in the power of Jesus. And I'm not putting her down. You know, I, I understand. But she had more faith in the power of Jesus to heal her brother from his sickness before he died than she did for believing that Jesus could heal her brother after he died. I mean, after all, she had seen Jesus heal hundreds, if not thousands of people over the course of his three and a half year public ministry of all kinds of diseases. Her brother's illness, illness would be no big deal for Jesus. It's just another day at the office for Jesus, right? And by the way, it wouldn't require her faith to be stretched at all because she was comfortable with Jesus healing diseases of people that were alive. I mean, she has seen it many times. It wouldn't require her to have her faith stretched in the least in believing that Jesus could heal him. But guys, that all changed when Jesus delayed his coming until after Lazarus was dead and was buried for four days and his spirit had left him as they believed, okay? At this point, she was facing or she found herself facing a situation that went so far beyond whatever faith she had in Jesus. A situation that was stretching her faith beyond the boundaries of her comfort zone. That she gently rebukes Jesus for putting her in this uncomfortable position. We don't like it when God puts us in situations that stretch us out of our comfort zones. We don't like it when God puts us in situations to believe him for something we've never seen him do before in our lives. Right? I mean, those situations stretch our faith. And they're scary. And they're unpleasant. And our flesh doesn't like it. And I'm convinced she was a little bit irritated with the Lord for not coming in time to heal Lazarus before he died because now she doesn't have the faith to believe Jesus to raise him from the dead after four days. But because she didn't want to sound like she had no faith, we don't want to sound like that, do we? We always want to sound spiritual. Because she didn't want to sound like she had no faith she said in verse 22 but even now i know that whatever you ask god god will give you guys does she really mean that did she really mean that or was she simply making a super spiritual sounding statement so as to sound like a deep woman of faith i mean we christians are famous for making great statements of faith that we don't really have to live out We are famous for making great statements of faith. So it was the sound like deeply spiritual men and women of faith. But then the Lord often calls our bluff, doesn't he? By saying to us, okay, well, you're a great person of faith. Phil, you're always telling me how, what a great man of faith. I don't do it, but you're always telling me what a great man of faith you are. Well, let's see. And then the Lord puts you in a situation that Demands a lot of faith in our so-called faith, quote-unquote, collapses like a house of cards, right? I believe that is essentially what happened with Martha and why when Jesus told them to roll the stone away, Lord, I know that whatever you ask God, he's going to give you. Death is no problem for the Father. I believe this is essentially what happened with Martha when 
And why when Jesus told the men to roll away the stone from the tomb that she said, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he's been dead for four days. I believe it was her faith collapsing like a house of cards. Like so many believers in Jesus, Martha had faith for the future too. Think about this. You know, he said, well, Martha, your brother's going to rise again. He's going to live again. Oh, I know, Lord. He will rise again in the resurrection of the last day, verse 24, right? She had faith for the future. It's easy to have faith for the future. You know why? Because it's the future, not right now. It's easy to say, well, I believe that, yeah, in the resurrection of the dead, Jesus is going to raise everybody someday. What about right now? Well, I, well, I, can't, I can't buy that. Well, why not? Isn't he the, the Lord of time? What makes him more of a God 100 years down the road than he is right now? Very important. She had faith for the future. Yes, I know, Lord. He's going to rise again at the resurrection of the last day. But she didn't have faith for the moment. She believed that Jesus could and would raise her brother in the future, but she didn't believe that he could raise her brother right then and there. God help us to have faith for the moment. We're going to need it. This idea that we have faith, but it's always for the future. Well, the kind of faith that we need is the faith for the moment, all right? That God is going to work, that God's going to provide, that God is going to do this or that. Now, let me close by saying this. There is something else to consider here. And I lean toward this. I could be wrong. It could be that after three-plus years of public ministry, Martha had not yet come to fully believe that Jesus was God incarnate which could have been the real source of her doubts in him, being able to raise her brother from the dead. Mary, I believe she believed, but she sat at Jesus' feet all the time. She knew things about him that others didn't know because she sat and listened. Martha was a, a workaholic. She was always running around serving. I'm not putting that down, but she didn't know Jesus as well as Mary did. And that could be really what was behind her words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of what? Who? God. I've got it bracketed here. Because I don't believe you can do it. God will give you brackets because I don't believe you are God. This is a position held by one of my favorite commentators, William MacDonald. He said, and I quote, the word which Martha used for ask, even now whatever you ask of God, he will give you. He said, the word which Martha used for ask is a word normally used to describe a creature supplicating or praying to the creator. It seems clear from this that Martha did not yet recognize the deity of the Lord Jesus. She realized that he was a great and unusual man, but probably no greater than the prophets of old, end quote. Yeah, like Elisha or Elijah. They even raised the dead. They did miracles. I kind of believe that Martha at this point believes that Jesus was a great prophet, but not the Son of God. And if Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead, it's, it's beyond his pay grade. Okay? On this one, Lord, you, got, you better ask God. You better ask the Father. Okay? You, you know, don't, I don't think you can do it. It's, it's too great. He's been dead for four days. By this time, there's a stench. If you're serious about raising, you better talk to the Father. 
because you know you're you're a, you're a great prophet, but this this is God Almighty territory. Oh, okay. Well, of course, her understanding of Jesus was about to change dramatically in just a few moments. Okay, let's leave it there. But I want to end by just saying this. I know that we've gone past our time. Forgive me. Uh, just let me close with this. Okay. Even those of us who are genuine Christians, we do, of course, believe Jesus is God. Of course we do, okay? That doesn't mean that we don't need our faith stretched once. Faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the, the stronger it gets, the larger it gets. We, we, and God knows that. The stronger our faith, the closer we are to him. So he puts us into situations that stretch our faith. We don't like that. Our flesh does not like that. We want to play it comfortable. We want to stay in the comfort zone. We don't want to be in to step out of the boat like Peter and walk on water. That's too scary. That requires too much. I'd rather play it safe and stay in the boat. So a lot of Christians are playing it safe and staying in the boat. And what I mean by boat, I mean their church. They're not stepping out in faith. God help us to be men and women of faith. Yeah, it's scary. And yeah, Peter did sink after a little bit. But for a while, he walked on water. For a while, he, he, he felt like what it was like to, to do the impossible. I'd rather walk on water for a few minutes and sink than stay in the boat and play it safe the whole time. All the promises in God's word can only be actualized in our lives through faith. That is why Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? That is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. They're yours for the taking, but you have to believe. You've got to believe. Again, faith is like a conduit, to use another metaphor, that allows the power of God to flow from him into our lives to fulfill, listen, everything he has promised to do for us and to give to us, starting with eternal life, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Jesus said, and I'll close with this scripture, John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, will never be cast into hell, but has passed from death to life. Look, if Jesus Christ can raise the dead, here, here's what I want to leave you with. Is there any problem that you have that he can't solve? What's your problem here this morning? Well, I, I kind of got a dead marriage. Can't he raise that marriage from the dead? I kind of got a dead walk. Can't he resurrect your walk? First of all, you're already saved. You're already alive. You may be comatose. You may be backslidden you may need revival but you don't need regeneration you don't need new life you have it in christ you just need to to make use of all the life that is in there by god working a, a revival in your heart whatever problem you brought into this room this morning know this jesus is greater and can solve it he can raise the dead he can solve any problem that you have but you have to ask yourself do i believe this if you don't it won't happen. If you truly believe in the promises of God, that they're yes and amen, that faith will open the floodgates of God's power and it will flow into your life in a way you never thought possible. So let's think upon that this week and let's pray and we'll come back to this next time. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we just pray that you would Continue to bless these studies in your word for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name.